Hello, my name is uh, Marshall. I can't remember if I introduced myself before. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. I'll teach on the passage that Andy has just read for us. I do want to say welcome to all of those of you who are here. Glad you're here. Welcome to all of those of you who are joining us online, either now or later with a recorded sermon. Hey, how you doing? Um, and for all of us, whether online or here, uh, Grace is a church that we hope that it could be a church, if you are a follower of Jesus and you're looking to grow in your faith, uh, this is a place where you can come and be encouraged by God's people and God's word. But also Grace hopes to be a church for those who are investigating Christianity. You're not sure about the claims of Jesus. Maybe you have doubts or you have questions. We want to be this a safe place where you can come and ask those questions and give the space uh, to deal with those things without pressure. But our hope also is that grace is a place for maybe those of you who have been burned by Christianity. You still hold on by some loose thread, uh, but maybe the church or, the, or other Christians have hurt you in such a way. And we want grace to be a place where you can sit back, take your time re-entering the family of God. Of course, we want to invite you to a deeper uh, relationship with the church and all that. But maybe you need to slip in early, uh, slip out early, slip in, slip in late, slip out early. You know what I'm trying to say, uh, just to make, your, make space for yourself um, uh, here in the church for those who are burnt out. But Grace a Church where all people are welcome regardless of where they are on their faith journey. Maybe you believe fervently, maybe you don't believe at all. But we're here because we believe Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Son of God who has revealed himself primarily through his word to which we will give our attention in just a moment. But let me pray before we turn to this passage of Scripture. God, we come now to a passage that tells us how to love one another, how to be in communion and fellowship with one another, how to be friends at some level. And some of these words are hard for us to hear, but we pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would show yourself to us. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter, but my will gets weak and my thoughts seem to scatter. But I think it's about forgiveness. All right, good Don Henley fans. Nice work uh, dating myself just a bit there. The heart of the matter, forgiveness, the heart of the matter. In 1993 in February in North Minneapolis, Mary Johnson received a phone call that her 20-year-old son had been murdered by another young man at a party that had a disagreement, and a man named O'Shea Israel had killed her son over a disagreement with a gun. He killed him. Now, in the court statement, she said that she forgave her son's killer, uh, that she said, because, quote, the Bible tells us to do so. But she realized not soon after that she really had not forgiven her son's killer. She says the root of bitterness ran deep. Anger had set in, and I hated everyone. But then, with some years after this bitterness welled up in her, Mary came across a poem about two mothers. One was the mother of a killer. The other was the mother of the killer's victim. And to quote Mary, it was a poem all about the commonality of pain, and it showed me my destiny. It wasn't long after this that she began visiting her son's murderer in prison. Because he'd killed her as a, been a killer as a youth, he was only sentenced to 25 years. But she began visiting him in prison. And miraculously, her hatred dissolved, and she forgave her son's killer. In March of 2020, when it was time for O'Shea Israel to be released from prison, Mary Johnson and a, some Catholic nuns from the neighborhood welcomed O'Shea home with a big party. He moved in next door, in the condo next door, to Mary. They are still, to this day, friends. She carries a medallion around her neck. One side is a picture of her murdered son, the other side is a picture of the son 
who murdered her first son. Forgiveness is powerful. Great hope, great forgiveness, and that is a feel-good story. But I wonder how you feel about Henry Ruggs III. If you know the name, he's been in the news lately. Henry Ruggs III was until recently an immensely talented and very fast wide receiver for the Las Vegas Raiders, who a couple of weeks ago, while intoxicated at twice the legal limit and driving 156 miles an hour with incidentally a loaded gun on the seat next to him, crashed into and killed a 23-year-old woman. The media response has been swift and expected. Entitled, rich athlete, misbehaving in Las Vegas. What do you think about Henry Ruggs III? Well, let me tell you about a man who's gone up in my estimation, his former quarterback, Derek Carr. This is what Derek Carter, after acknowledging the immense pain of the family of the woman who has died, who had been killed, he went on to talk about, in his press conference, Henry Ruggs, his former teammate. He said this, for whatever reason, when I walk past his locker, it gets to me. He's not going to be there, and I miss him. Not because he's fast, not because what could he do for me as an NFL quarterback, but because of the person that he is and because I love him. He needs people to love him right now. He's probably feeling a certain way about himself, and he needs to be loved. If no one else will do it, I will. I will. Forgiveness is powerful, but forgiveness is also very difficult, let's be honest. Now, I'm assuming that you are not dealing with forgiving someone who killed a loved one, although that may be where you are. That may be actually true for someone in this room. But I'm guessing that you struggle, like I do, with forgiveness. Maybe it's something mild, the way you respond to being cut off in traffic or something that you hear on the news from a particular politician, or someone taking a joke at your expense and you feel like it's too far and you have trouble forgiving them. Someone does something to your child. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's that persistent scorekeeping in your marriage. You just There's that one thing your spouse does and keeps doing, and you just keep scoring. Won't you stop? Won't you stop? And there's a slow boil. Maybe it's a simmering rage. You're convinced that you are right and the world is wrong. Maybe something really serious has happened to you, something serious in your past or your recent presence, and you know the commands to forgive. But forgiveness is real, and it is hard. Now, if you've been with us this fall, we have been studying the book of Matthew, the first gospel in the Christian New Testament, the gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew is not a biography of Jesus so much as it is a gospel. It tells the story of his birth, of his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. It's his story, and it's told with two purposes. First, to introduce people to Jesus. This is who Jesus is, what he did, what matters about him. But also, and primarily in Matthew, Matthew is a book of discipleship. It is designed to help people grow in their faith. You and me, followers of Jesus, if you are, to grow in their faith. And one of the chief helps that we have in the Gospel of Matthew are five recorded sermons from Jesus. Five recorded sermons that tell us how to follow Jesus. There's one about the ethics of Jesus' kingdom. We call that the Sermon on the Mount. Then there's a sermon about how to live on mission. That's Matthew chapter 10. There's a, uh, there's a sermon about the nature of God's kingdom, Matthew chapter 13. We'll look at this during Advent. And then at the end of the book, there's a sermon, about the, um, there's a sermon that gives, Jesus gives about the future of the kingdom, Matthew 23, 24, and 25. But today, the fourth sermon of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus' sermon on community. 
today, Matthew 18, how to live together, how to love one another. Now I ask Andy to read from Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus is asked by someone, what is the chief command? What is the greatest command in the law? And he says it's twofold, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And secondly, love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this passage, our passage this morning, Matthew 18, is a sermon in response to that question. This passage answers the question, how do I love my neighbor, my Christian brother or neighbor, as myself? I got three points this morning. Um, I want to show us how love uh, seeks others, love, love love confronts others, And then thirdly, where we'll spend most of our time, love forgives. So love seeks. How do you love our neighbor? You love seeks, love confronts, and then thirdly, love forgives. First, love seeks. Look with me at verses 10 to 14. We're not going to cover every verse here. This will be quick. I'm going to read again verse 12. Jesus asked, what do you think? If a man has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray. Now the picture is a shepherd with a flock of 100 sheep. One has wandered away and the good shepherd goes after that sheep. He finds it and he rejoices, brings it back. Leave the 99, a great mantra for church. Leave the 99, go after the one. Now it's interesting, the same basic story is told in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 15, the story is told, and it's primarily addressed to going after those who do not yet believe in Jesus, those who have not become Christians, who have not followed Jesus. But here in Matthew 18, this is not addressed to those outside the community of faith. This is addressed to people within the community of faith who have wandered away. Maybe it's their doubts. Maybe it's a particular set of suffering. Maybe it's a pandemic. Maybe it's sin, the guilt of sin. Perhaps it's they are covered in shame for something about them. Maybe it's a particular temptation. Maybe they have been hurt by the church or by other Christians Whatever the case, this sheep, this person has wandered away. And it's a question for all Christian churches, and especially for our church this morning, can we be a seeking church? Which is to say, to use our mission statement, can we be a welcoming church and a re-welcoming church going after those who have wandered away? Now, two things to note about a love that seeks others. The first is this, it is very costly. It is not cost efficient. There's a lot of resources involved in leaving 99 and devoting your resources to chasing after one sheep. It's not cost efficient. Life in the church never is. But the thing that I want you to really notice about this little passage is that it's all overlaid with joy. With joy. This is the the main stroke that's being struck here. Verse 13. And if the shepherd finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over the one that is found more than the 99 that never went astray. And so my question this morning, especially for those of you who are members of our church, is there, so, is there for someone else's sake and for your own joy, someone that you need to seek out and love? Maybe it's in this church, maybe it's in your family, another part of the country. Is there someone that you need to leave the 99 and go after in love? Hear their story, listen to what they have to say. But Jesus does not stop with a love that seeks. He also talks about, interestingly, he kind of intensifies it, a love that confronts A love that confronts, verses 15 through 20. Let me read verse 15, 16, and part of 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to him, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others 
with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is a classic passage sometimes cited for something called church discipline. Okay, that's a thorny subject. I'm not going to go too far down that path except to say several things about the who, the how, and the why. The who, the how, and the why. First, the who. It's very important to notice that Jesus is talking to Jesus' followers, to Christ's followers. It says, verse 15, if a brother or sister in Christ sins against you. Jesus is not talking about dealing with those who do not follow Jesus. We as the church are not called to be the cultural moral police. In fact, it almost invariably happens that when the church starts talking about morality outside its walls, that it really goes bad because people start to think that the way to become a Christian is to be good. Whereas that's the very opposite message of the Christian New Testament. We are saved by grace, not by what we have done. So first of all, this is a message that talking about Jesus to his disciples about other Christ followers. That's the who. But then there's the how. How do you actually do that, okay? Because there's a tension in what Jesus is saying. Because here he says, if you have someone, tell a fault to your brother. Tell a fault. But in this same gospel, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. So which one is it, Jesus? Which one is it? Is it judge not or tell a brother or sister her fault, his fault? Which is it? Which is it? Well, it's hard to say, but how can you in love confront someone? How can you in love confront someone without judging them? I have two ideas, and they're both from this text. The first is you deal directly with the person in question, which is to say there is nothing more harmful to any community than gossip. Than gossip. Never talk about someone and their faults. Talk about with them and their faults. If you, and if you also, if you hear someone else gossiping about someone else, your first response should be say, don't say this to me. Go say this to that person. Don't bring this to me. We've got to kill gossip because gossip is not just saying untrue things. A lot of times we think that gossip is saying untrue things and spinning those around. Gossip is actually sometimes saying things that are at least partially, if not wholly true, but they're taken to other people and they're not said in love. Gossip can be a true thing and still extremely destructive. So first, no gossip. Don't talk to other people. Talk to the person if you have an issue. But second and more importantly, you have to have what I call gospel humility. Gospel humility. Realizing that the other person's sin is greater than yours. My favorite example of this in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. Behind Jesus, it is clear the Apostle Paul was the major force in founding the Christian religion. The Apostle Paul. And you know what he calls himself in 1 Timothy 1? And this is not a rhetorical device. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He says, I'm the worst sinner. And it's because he actually believed that, he could actually talk to people. He could tell a brother his fault. My favorite example of the Apostle Paul telling a brother his fault is when he confronts in Galatians chapter 2 the Apostle Peter for his racist behavior. You see, it's because the Apostle Paul knew himself to be the chief of sinners that he could talk to the Apostle Peter about his racism. You see? The classic book and the best book that I know on Christian community, I highly commend it to you. We've ordered copies of it. It will be on the book table next week if it's not this week, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. If you've never read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together, I highly commend it to you. It's short and it's easily readable. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about this point. If my sinfulness appears to me in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. My sin 
is of necessity the worst, the most grievous, the most reprehensible. How can I possibly serve another person if I seriously regard his or her sinfulness as worse than my own? (laughs) Friends, you cannot confront someone unless you actually think that you are a greater sinner than they are. You can't do it in love unless you actually think that. Unless with the Apostle Paul you think that you are the chief of sinners. But there's one more thing that needs to be said about confronting. That's the why. The goal of confronting is restoration and the glory of God. And I quote Bonhoeffer again. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Translation, what matters is restoration and the glory of God. Bringing people back, calling them back. Let me tell you two stories. Two stories. In my former church, the church I served in California, there was a man who was married with two children. He fell in love with a woman at work, and he left his wife, moved out, and moved in with this other woman. Completely left the faith. Our church is one of the most proud moments I've ever had as a pastor. Our church rallied around this woman. We wrote letters to pursue this man. We warned him. We pleaded with him. We gathered around this woman who had been just so grievously left behind. And for several years, this man lived like this. And actually, I personally had given up hope. I'd kind of quit, see, I'd quit seeking him, quit doing anything. I'd quit. But apparently, out of the blue, and by the grace of God, this person came back to their senses, repented, returned to his wife, and actually had more children with her. It's one of the more beautiful stories I've ever seen in a church setting. Beautiful, stunning repentance and forgiveness because someone had cared enough to seek and to confront. Now, the second story I'm going to tell you, though, seems like no big deal. But because it happens so rarely, it is meaningful and worth mentioning. It was about 10 years ago, 10 years ago, before I was married. And every, family, my, every year my family takes a vacation in June together. We all get together. And my siblings came to me at the beginning of this vacation a decade or so ago. They came to me and in love said, you know, Marshall, the last few years, I'll, you've been a real jerk. That's basically what they said on our vacation. You basically, you're single and you kind of just do whatever you want on these vacations and you don't care about anyone else. Now, I was taken aback, but I knew they were right, and they had said it in love. At the end of the trip, they had the grace to come up to me and said, you know, we noticed a change this week. You loved us better. You were more present with us. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal, right? But friends, I needed that. I needed that to be a better sibling, to be a better son, to be a better uncle, to be a better person. Is there someone that in love and that you know that you're a greater sinner than that you need to go to in love and say, let me tell you your fault, sister. Let me tell you your fault, brother. But significantly, stay with me, confronting is not the final word in this passage. Confronting is not the final word. The final word in this passage is forgiveness. I actually think, is I've, this, this passage has been tough to think about all week because Jesus seems kind of harsh and I've, and I've wrestled with it. But what seems to be happening is Jesus goes through this seeking and through this confronting to bring us to forgiveness. It's like he wants to rub our nose in those things so that we would wrestle with forgiveness and just how important, real, and difficult it is. Because the final word here is not just that love confronts and love seeks, but love, friends, forgives. Verses 21 to the end of the chapter. Now at this point, Peter, who else, uh, interrupts Jesus' sermon. And he says to Jesus, verse 21, "How, how much do I have to forgive? Do I have to forgive up to seven times? Now you should know, Uh, That seven is a lot of times to forgive someone, first of all. And also in the Bible, seven is the number of perfection. 
And so Peter thinks he's doing a pretty good job by saying forgiving seven times. But Jesus says, no, you must forgive up to seven times 70. Basically, Jesus is saying forgiveness is to be infinite. You should never stop forgiving no matter what someone does to sin against you. Then Jesus goes on to tell a story about a king who has a guy who owes him. It says he owes him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is roughly the equivalent of 20 years' worth of income, 20 years. So when Jesus says 10,000 of those, he's basically, it's, a hy- it's hyperbole. He's saying there's no way you can, it's billions upon billions. There's no way you can repay this. That's what this guy owes. But the guy comes and begs for his life. The king has compassion on him and releases the entirety of the debt, forgives him. It's a stunning act of forgiveness. But the guy who's forgiven walks out. He finds somebody who owns him 100 denarii. Now, a denarii was a day's wages. So we're talking about 100 days' wages. This is not an insignificant sum. It's not billions, but this is a real sum of money, basically a third of a salary, right? third of the annual salary. But he owes him that, and he, he also begs for forgiveness. But the guy who's been forgiven billions cannot forgive. He sends that guy to jail. Other folks see it. They tell the king. The king gets ticked, and he throws the first guy, the billion-dollar guy, back into jail. Okay? Now, the first guy, the billion-dollar guy, lacks two things. He lacks an appreciation for how much he has been forgiven, and he lacks the reality of God's future judgment. Okay? He, this passage, Jesus appears to be teaching, you cannot win God's forgiveness, but you can lose it if you refuse to practice forgiveness. This passage terrifies me. Jesus is saying you cannot win God's forgiveness, but it appears that you can lose it if you don't practice forgiveness. Let me say it clearly. To fail to forgive is to risk judgment. Now, what is going on? What is Jesus doing here? This passage, this whole chapter is just so rough. Dale Bruner, my favorite commentator on the Gospel of Matthew, points out that what this, this sermon is just surprising and how serious Jesus takes sin and talks about it. There's no sense of, we're sinners saved by grace, so just let it go and don't judge. There's no sense of that in this passage. Why so serious? Why so even pedantic? Maybe even harsh? What's going on here? Well, I think there's several things, possible reasons. They're all connected. The first is this. God is a realist. God is a realist, and he knows that conflict, when anytime there's a community of sinners, anytime people get together, there will be conflict. It's inevitable. I mean, the whole New Testament is premised upon the reality that there's a community of sinners, and when sinners get together, whether it's two people in a marriage or a church or a country, there will be conflict. And it's good to have some ways to think about how to navigate it, and the best way to navigate any type of conflict in a relationship is forgiveness. Forgiveness, friends, is the only thing that can hold a relationship together. If you're in any type of relationship, at any type of level with another person, the only thing that can hold it together is forgiveness. But second, why so harsh? God is just. God is holy. And therefore, sin matters to God. And I've been guilty of what I'm about to say. We all talk about how we're broken, how we're fallen, but we don't use the language of God and we don't use the language of sin. But John Stott defines sin as the essence of sin is godliness, godlessness. God created us, God created us, and our sin is open rebellion against him. But that's not the end of the story. Because it's not just that God is just and therefore sin matters, but God loves to heal, God loves to forgive. 
First of all, this is what got the whole thing started. For God so loved the world, as we said in our assurance part. For God so loved the world that he forgave our sins. He came into the world to forgive our sins. God loves to forgive. And because he loves to forgive, it brings so much joy to him. He wants us to experience that same joy. Colossians 3.13, you are to forgive each other because God has forgiven you. God wants us to experience the joy of forgiveness. In the process of healing and forgiveness, what does it involve? It involves bringing our sin into the light. Sin loves the darkness, and it is only healed in the light, the white, searching, hot heat of Matthew chapter 18. Now, the fact that sin is only healed in light, this is the fundamental conviction the fundamental conviction of one of the most successful life change organizations of all time. One of the most successful life change organizations of all time, Alcoholics Anonymous. My name, hello, my name is, and I am an alcoholic. That is the beginning of healing, bringing our sin into the light. I like to imagine what if in our church at the piecing, when we pass the peace of Christ, when we stand up and shake each other's hands or bump each other, peace, whatever, we said, hello, my name is Marshall, and I am a sinner. If we really acted like that, if that really got deep in our DNA, that would change the way we relate to one another. It would change the way we relate to our community, really believing that as we bring our sin into the light, we can be healed. Because, friends, forgiveness is so important, but forgiveness is so Countercultural. It is so countercultural, especially in this cultural moment. Our cultural moment does not love forgiveness. We don't even really love tolerance anymore. Our cultural moment, we love to parade our righteousness. When's the last time you heard a politician apologize? And it's not just that we love to parade our righteousness, we also love to cancel one another. When I was growing up, the spirit of the age was tolerance. You leave everyone alone. That's not today's spirit. Today is about justice. To quote the man in this passage, pay me what you owe. Pay me what you owe. There's no place for forgiveness. But as N.T. Wright says, forgiveness is the central characteristic of the life of those who follow Jesus. Forgiveness is at the center of our life. It's at the center of our life. Or as Charles Matthew says, moral progress is more about forgiveness of sins than about the perfection of our virtues. Do you hear that? That moral perfection is not about how much we perfect ourselves, but how we're able to forgive. And friends, our world desperately needs this message. Our world desperately needs the message of the forgiveness of sins because there is no forgiveness of sins in the broader culture. You say the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing, you are persecuted, you're canceled. Maybe for life. And this is the one organization that says forgiveness matters above all things. This is the great hope for the world. We offer forgiveness of sins of one another and everybody around us. We serve a God who forgives. We serve a God who forgives. Which brings me to the real thing I think that Jesus is doing in this passage. Because there's this. When we forgive, we are most like God himself. When we forgive, we are most like God. I want you to think of maybe the two, two of the most important passages in the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament. When God talks about who he is and what he does. First, Exodus chapter 34. Moses basically says to God, God, tell me who you are. And this is what God says, Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed before Moses and he said, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When God talks about who he is, he says, I'm one who forgives. 
But also when he talks about what he does, Jeremiah 31, the very famous passage on the new covenant. This is what God said, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within him, I will write it on their hearts, and then further down, for I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. You see, friends, when God talks about who he is, when God talks about what he does, he talks about forgiveness. To forgive is at the heart of the essence of who God is. And he wants it for you and for me. To forgive is at the heart of God himself. I read a review of a, of a novel, a fictional account. The name of the novel is Adolf and Ivan, The Last Man in Hell. It pictures, fictionally, Adolf Hitler. You know Adolf Hitler. Some of you would know Ivan Karamazov, the very famous character from Russian literature. And they are pictured as the last two people in hell. <laughs> it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting gambit. The last two people in hell. And they are served, Adolf Hitler and Ivan Karamazov, by a maid who takes care of them. Her name is Sophie. And this is what Sophie says to Adolf and Ivan. Forgiveness is a gift. It's revenge that's predictable. Revenge is the automatic, natural reaction to being hurt. Forgiveness is an entirely creative act. It comes out of nowhere. It's completely unpredictable. For most human beings, it is incomprehensible. It is as close as human beings come to creating something out of nothing. The way God made the universe. Well, to riff on the great artistic uh, depiction of forgiveness in my time, the Broadway musical Les Miserables, to love, to forgive another person is to see the face of God. To love another person, to forgive another person is to see the face of God. We are most like God when we bestow forgiveness as he has forgiven us. Most like God when we forgive. But you know, if we're honest, this still does not answer the question. Why is forgiveness so difficult for us? I mean, I've just given you like four or five reasons. You have the commands of scriptures, and our heart still cries out with that guy who would be, pay me what you owe. Pay me what you owe. Why is forgiveness so difficult? Why is it? Well, I tried to avoid this, but I'm going to have to end with a quote. I'm going to translate because it's a little bit of a difficult quote. It's a guy named Miroslav Volf. He's a Serbian theologian. And you'll, you'll get it. He writes this, forgiveness, why is, why is forgiveness difficult? That's the question. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Translation, we fail to forgive because we simultaneously think, not necessarily that other people are monsters and that we're angels, although we do do that, other people are monsters, we're angels, but we do it because we think, what's the deal with that person? What's wrong with them? And we think, I'm a pretty good person. We exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. We exclude them from the community of humanity, right? He goes on. But no one can be in the presence of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion. Without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrance into the sphere of shared humanity and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. See, friends, if you are having trouble forgiving, spend some time at the foot of the crucified Messiah. Take yourself there imaginatively. Take yourself there in your journal. Sit at the foot of the crucified Messiah. 
reflecting and taking that very thing that you can't let go of, that thing that you can't forgive, taking it to the foot of the crucified Messiah. And when you do, and it may take, if it's, if it's something big, it may take years, and that's okay. Mary Johnson took a decade. But take it to the foot of the crucified Messiah because it's there you see that God is a God who seeks the lost sheep. He confronts us in our brokenness, but friends, at the end of the day, he forgives us of our sins and he dies for the sins of the world, yours and mine. He died for your sins. And as you sit at the foot of the cross with that burden that you're carrying, the only way to relinquish it and lay it down is to put yourself in the community of sinners that God died for and that person in that very same pool with you. And by the grace of God, we can do the most countercultural, radical thing imaginable. We can forgive. We can forgive. Your heart can be dissolved and freed to love and move towards other people. I think God loves us so much that he gives us this hard passage to wrestle with this and take us to the end of ourselves and realize that we don't really forgive. But we can grow in it by his grace and by his mercy. May it be so for us. Let me pray. Our great God, we thank you that you love us enough, not just that you forgive our sins, but that you want to give us a heart like yours, a heart that loves, a heart that forgives, a heart that seeks. Would you do that by your grace and for your sake? And it's in your name we pray. Amen.